Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> Well, hello there. How enrapturing it is to see you return yet again to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I am your shopkeeper, Chris Baker, and today we've got a very special item indeed. I took the liberty of pulling this from our bookshelf of haunted works, lost tomes, and forgotten manuscripts. This is an edition of Burton's Gentleman's Magazine from 1839 a literary publication published in Philadelphia for a brief time between 1837 and 1840, and it was the hope of William Evans Burton to create a magazine that would be worthy of a place upon every parlor table of every gentleman in the United States. This periodical included poems, fiction, and essays, but it is a particular issue of this gentleman's magazine from 1839 that piques our curiosity here at Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. For this issue from 1839 is the first publication of Edgar Allan Poe's work, The Fall of the House of Usher, a gothic tale of madness, isolation, and metaphysics. And it is this story that has inspired a new limited series from the mind of Mike Flanagan. So without further ado, let's pull out the mutoscope and take a look at the new Netflix series, The Fall of the House of Usher. So, The Fall of the House of Usher is a Mike Flanagan limited series for Netflix. It dropped this past Thursday, October the 12th. And it's really, for me, a, a limited series that I have been anticipating for, for quite some time. If I would have known that it was going to be what it was going to be beforehand, uh, I would have been even that much more excited about this work. And and I'll get into my reasoning for that uh, here here shortly. We'll we'll stay within the realms of spoiler free for a little bit, but we are going to get into some spoiler territory because wow, this series just has so much going on. It's more than just the fall of the House of Usher story, and it is a modern telling, and it is a loose interpretation of that fall of the House of Usher story. The Edgar Allan Poe story, it's not a chamber play, but it very much takes place primarily on the Usher estate, and it is a story that consists of only three characters. You have Roderick and Madeline Usher, and then you have the unnamed narrator that is a friend, an old friend of Roderick's. They hadn't really spoken in quite some time, but Roderick uh, calls him to the Usher estate because he is suffering from some unspecified illness. And Madeline is possibly suffering from this same illness. And the house is in disrepair. And there's this big fissure uh, running through the house. And it all plays together. And I'll get into what I think, or at least what some people think the the whole idea behind this story, what, what makes this supernatural 
uh, tale, a supernatural tale, but it definitely is a gothic tale, uh, a gothic piece of fiction. It is a story that revolves around melancholy and even regret to a degree, although a lot of it just goes unspecified. And that's, I think, why there's such a mystery as to what is the meaning of this story. You know, everyone's got an opinion and it's been a long time since I've read this story. I, I did try to give myself a little bit of a crib notes refresher on the original work of Fall of the House of Usher. I've got a complete works of Edgar Allan Poe on my on my bookshelf, uh, but just uh, I, I got so engrossed in this, and I wanted to talk about this this adaptation. Uh, so fast that I, I didn't take the time to reread the story. And I, I really wish I had, but but I do remember uh, bits of it. And I have seen some other adaptations recently. I can't remember if it was Netflix did kind of a, a an animated, or at least they have an animated movie that takes three or four, maybe four Edgar Allan Poe stories and tells them. I believe Fall of the House of Usher is one of those. I watched that here within the past few years. So, so I've seen adaptations about Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, so I, I think I remember the story well enough that I don't need to reread it. And, and I think you have to know the story to be able to appreciate this adaptation because as far as the Fall of the House of Usher uh, story in and of itself goes, it is a loose interpretation of that. Normally, I would be like, you, you've got to adhere at least to the, the basic tenets of this story. Uh, to, to make an adaptation, but I, I don't think you can do Fall of the House of Usher in an eight-episode limited series. You can't do it. it. It's just impossible without adding to it, because like I said, it is only three characters, primarily one location. While it's not a chamber play, it's not one room, it is the Usher estate. I mean, you might be able to get a movie out of that. You might be able to get an hour and a half to two-hour movie out of that, but you can't get eight hours worth of content out of that. So you have to add to it. And that is where the brilliance of Mike Flanagan and his team of writers and creators, that's where just the brilliance of all of this comes into play. Because while this is the fall of the House of Usher, it is that story loosely interpreted. It is so much more than that. And I don't want to get into too much. I don't want to give too much away. Although, if you look at the list of episodes uh, when you're when you're pulling it up on Netflix, you're going to see a lot of familiar names as the title of each episode, and that really gives away a lot of where this is going to go. Uh, I, I won't say any more about that until we get into the spoiler section. But this is so much more than just the fall of the House of Usher. This really is a love letter to the works of Edgar Allan Poe, to Edgar Allan Poe himself, in the characters, in the dialogue, in a lot of the various elements of this, in each episode, in each character. There are so many Edgar Allan Poe references that I'm not an Edgar Allan Poe aficionado. I am not a foremost expert on Edgar Allan Poe. I've been a fan of Edgar Allan Poe since I was a kid. I got one of his books of uh, his mysteries, had Murder in the Rue Morgue, Black Cat, Telltale Heart, all those classic stories. Uh, I got a paperback book of that in one of our, our book fairs when I was in elementary school. And just have been a fan of Edgar Allan Poe for a long time. Now, I haven't read every piece of work that he has. Like I said, I do have the collected works of Edgar Allan Poe on my bookshelf. But there again, 
have not read everything about him, but I am aware of a lot of the the references. And there are even some references I was like, ah, that sounds familiar. You know, and, you know, I looked it up. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. This character's name comes from this story. And, and you get a lot of that throughout this miniseries. So I'll get into all that. I'm going to get into a lot of the references. Not so much how the... Uh, episode by episode, play by play of this mini series goes, but uh, I'm going to go into a lot of the characters, where their character comes from, how it applies to the story that they're put into, and the overall story in and of itself. And like I said, I'm really going to deal a lot more with the references. So if you haven't watched this, and I've seen a lot of people commenting on various uh, threads and various articles on Facebook and all over the internet, uh, you know, some people love this. They love all the Poe references just littered throughout this series. Uh, but then there were some people like, oh, I was bored after the first episode and I didn't watch anymore. Well, you've got to watch more than just one episode, for crying out loud. Uh, the the first episode is going to be like the first episode in any series, whether it be a limited series, whether it be a long-running series. The first episode is always going to be set up. Introduce you to all the players on the table. Introduce you to the circumstances. Introduce you to the stakes. Then we're off and running. And that's what you get with this. That first episode is essentially introducing you to all the players in the game. And then the rest of the series is the game itself. Uh, you look at it from a sports analogy. It is the starting lineup uh, that you're getting with that first episode. And then they actually play the game after the starting lineup's announced. If you really like horror, if you really like Edgar Allan Poe, if you really like a good story, you have to give it more than just that first episode. And you also have to manage your expectations because... Uh, if you read Fall of the House of Usher, this is not an action-packed story. Now, that's not to say there aren't some twists and turns and there aren't some some scares and some gore and that there's not some really interesting character development and story development. Uh, there is a lot of that. But action, this isn't an action story. This isn't going to be, you know, Ghostface running around with his arms flailing in the air, uh, chasing some teenage girl. That's just not this freaking story. I think that's why I get a little indignant with the people that say, well, it's boring. The first episode's boring, so I didn't watch the rest of it. Well, what did you think it was going to be? Have you ever read any Edgar Allan Poe? Because like I said, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, while his works are page turners, uh, they're certainly not action-packed. These aren't action dramas. These are character dramas and character-driven and atmosphere-driven. His stories, just the stories themselves. So safe to say that an adaptation of that is going to be fairly close to that. Now, I know in this day and age, adaptations are, are loose and, and a lot of filmmakers play fast and loose with those adaptations and add elements that do not sing to the heart of what the artist, the writer's original intent was with the story. You have a lot of that with Stephen King adaptations these days. So yeah, if you're expecting that, if you're expecting like the It, uh, giant Pennywise running around in a big fucking chase scene at the end of the movie, you're not going to get that sort of nonsense bullshit in this adaptation. You're going to get an adaptation while maybe not entirely faithful to the source material. And, and I say that with great hesitance because I, I believe it is fairly accurate to the, the tone and tenor 
of the the actual story and some of the main themes of that but it doesn't go exactly how the story goes and and it is a loose interpretation but in that Mike Flanagan as I said really paid close attention to the details of creating the same kind of atmosphere keeping this series this limited series in the same tone and tenor of an Edgar Allan Poe story so while it isn't a faithful word-for-word adaptation of Fall of the House of Usher, it is a really good and accurate adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe. So I'm going to get off that soapbox. If you haven't watched The Fall of the House of Usher on Netflix, I encourage you, go watch it. If you've watched that first episode and you're like, oh, I'm booed with this, give the second episode a chance. Give the third episode a chance. Once you realize where this is going and you don't realize where this is going until you get into that second episode, that's really where you see what Mike Flanagan is doing with this series. Uh, And we'll talk about that in the spoiler section, but give it another episode at the very least. But if you have watched it, or or maybe you don't care one way or the other, you're not a horror fan, you're not a Poe fan, you weren't going to watch this anyway, you want to hear what it's about though, we are going to talk about it. And we are going to talk about it with a lot of spoilers. So if you haven't watched it yet, don't want anything spoiled, uh, we are going to talk spoilers from here on out. So go watch it and then come back and see what my thoughts are on this. So I really am going to jump right into this because and jump right in with the spoilers because there's a lot to talk about and I don't want this episode to turn out to be two hours long. So I'm going to try and be pithy with this, but I am going to talk about the characters, uh, the characters place in the story and their own individual stories and those individual stories that pertain to different Poe works. And that's kind of what I alluded to in the, the beginning. You realize right away after that second episode that this was going to be not just the fall of the House of Usher, but each episode and each child, and we'll get into that coming up, but was going to be a modern adaptation of different Edgar Allan Poe stories. You've got Fall of the House of Usher, which is kind of the wraparound story for this. But within that, each episode is a different Edgar Allan Poe tale. Episode two is The Mask of the Red Death. Episode three is Murder in the Rue Morgue. Four is Black Cat, Telltale Heart. Number six, Gold Bug. That's probably the only one that isn't completely faithful to the original story. And and I think that's okay. And we'll talk about that. Uh, Pit and the Pendulum. And then, of course, uh, The Raven coming up at the end, which kind of wraps up the whole thing. And and once I realized what Mike Flanagan and, and the writers of this were doing, I was in. I mean, I was in from the beginning, but I got giddy when I realized that they were not just doing Fall of the House of Usher, but they were doing adaptations of all these different Edgar Allan Poe stories. So you start out with this tale, and it's really told from three different timelines. You have the Today timeline. I think that's actually supposed to take place in November of 2023. So this is actually taking place in the future. But you have it taking place then. You have it taking place in the late 70s, right up to about New Year's 
Eve heading into 1980. And then you have earlier in that in the late 50s, early 60s. You don't spend much time there. Uh, that's where you get the young version of Roderick and Madeline. That's where you get the Annabeth Gish cameo as she plays Liza Usher, the, the mother of Roderick and Madeline. But these two characters, I'm going to talk about them first, and then we're going to kind of end with them. Uh, you had a, a couple actors playing these two characters. Roderick Usher is the, the modern day version of him is Bruce Greenwood. The 70s version of Roderick Usher played by Zach Guilford. Madeline Usher, the modern day version of her is Mary McDonald. Remember her? She played Stands with Fifths in Dances with Wolves. She was in Donnie Darko, Scream 4, just a, a ton of ton of great movies and it was really nice to see her again uh, i think she was in independence day as well she played the the president's wife the first lady a wonderful actress but she plays the modern day version of madeline and willa fitzgerald plays the 70s version of of madeline and their relationship in the book is very mysterious and it leads to a lot of conjecture and speculation as to what their relationship really was but this story, I think, really fleshes out the fact that they're twins. Uh, they've had nothing but each other. And really, Madeline is kind of the mastermind and really pushes Roderick to, to do the things that he needs to do. And he really relies on her to help him make the tough decisions. So they really build that bond and make what is very vague in the story uh, very concrete and you you realize how these two siblings could be so close because they've only had each other they really emphasize madeline's character as kind of a she's been burnt by the patriarchy so she is very much a she's cold and she's calculating and she has a resolve that uh, goes beyond what society thinks her resolve should be as a, as a woman in the in the 70s you know and, and she's genius level with technology and you see how her her mind is not as appreciated as much as it should be uh, you know in in that time her mind wasn't as pr appreciated as much as her face and her body and you see how she becomes the person that she is one of the interesting things with Roderick that they introduce in this that is I don't know as if it was ever really touched upon in the story that he ever had children or or wife but in this story they introduce six children you have the two children that he had with his wife Annabelle Lee one of the first references to a, a Poe character or story uh, Frederick and Tamerlane we'll get into their references later and then he has four other as they call them bastards four other children uh, with various women that have all come to him and he's all welcomed that he's welcomed them all into his family because he and Madeline were quote-unquote bastards and were shunned by their biological father and then kind of a, a third character that plays into the original story is the C. August Dupin character played by Carl Lumley and this is kind of the surrogate for the unnamed narrator of the fall of the house of usher it is an old friend 
And, and it was interesting because they really made Dupin and Roderick kind of adversaries. But in going back to the past, you see that they were friends at one point. And that was, I think, a nod to the original story because they were friends long ago, kind of fell apart, had a parting of the ways. But then Roderick invites this unnamed narrator to his home at the end of his life. And, and in this, you have Roderick inviting Dupin to his old childhood home, which is kind of the ceremony for the Usher Manor. Uh, it's not a big sprawling estate that they live in now that they're rich and wealthy. It is their humble childhood beginnings. And Roderick is telling Dupin uh, about all the things that have happened, all the things that brought him to this point, which is different from the book, but I think it is still in the spirit of the story and in the spirit of a gothic tale, in the spirit of Edgar Allan Poe. The interesting thing about Dupin is because uh, this name, see August Dupin in Edgar Allan Poe is the investigator in Murder in the Rue Morgue. And they use this character as kind of a, a prosecutor and investigating the goings-on of the Usher Empire, which we'll kind of get into that in its references a little bit later. So once you get introduced, and we'll talk about all these individual children of Roderick Usher, uh, but once you realize there are six children and there are six episodes named after Edgar Allan Poe's stories that aren't fall the House of Usher, except for the end, the Raven, but you knew that was going to tie into some other thing that we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. But once you realize there are six other stories that they're going to tell here, and there are six children, you, you quickly realize that they're going to do all these other stories, and each child is going to be a part of of their own story. And the basic idea of this is that the fall of the House of Usher is quite literally that. All of his children, all of his all of his bloodlines start to die off. One of the early scenes we get is him at a funeral for the last three of his children. Roderick, that is. So we're going to take each episode at a time. We're going to introduce the character that is the main character in this story and how it pertains to relation to the actual story in which it's inspired from. And the first one is episode two, which is Mask of the Red Death, which probably one of my favorite episodes. I think it was a great episode to start off with because it is quite literally this one and Murder in the Rue Morgue. These two are probably the most literal interpretations of the Poe work that it's named after as far as the character involved and the, the story itself. And in Mask of the Red Death, you have Roderick's youngest child, Perry, also known as Prospero Usher, played by Surian Sapkota. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. You may remember him from Mike Flanagan's The Midnight Club that uh, came out like last year sometime. Wonderful actor. Does a really good job with Prospero. And, and it really is a, like a direct tie because the uh, main character in The Mask of the Red Death is Prince Prospero. So it, it is quite literal in that where you don't get a lot of that. You get namesakes of various Poe characters in some of these stories and in, in some of these children, but the story in which they're thrust into is not necessarily the story that they came from. But this, like this, and Murder in the Rue Morgue, very literal in that. But he's a young kid, wants to, to prove himself to his father. And I think that's one of the interesting things about this is uh, all these kids, in, in what they're doing with their father's money, they have 
good intentions to to a degree. It's just their way of going about it that makes them not likable at times. And that's why you feel like they're getting their comeuppance. And that's the thing with this Prospero character is that he's not, you know, he's kind of a dicky little 20 something that just is all about hedonism and gluttony and debauchery. But all he's trying to do is prove to his father his worth to him. That he does have good ideas. That he can make something of himself. Make something of the family. He's just going about it in the wrong way. But when he has this kind of pop-up rave in this old Fortunato. And that's one of the interesting things about this uh, story. Is that the company that the ushers run is called Fortunato. Which is a reference to the cask of Amontillado. We'll get into the, that and the reference there, but this Fortunato business, and Fortunato made its its name on prescription drugs, opioids. Uh, it's kind of like the Oxycontin or Percocet or whatever of this universe. And they also get into a lot of other shady things and uh, EPA violations. But uh, the, the way they play this story and, and the mirroring of it to the uh, Mask of the Red Death. I don't think it's the first time we're introduced to the Verna character played by Carla Cugino. But uh, it is the first where we really see uh, glimpses into who she is. And her coming into this party. And she's got the red cloak and the, the death mask. And it very much elicits those images from Poe's work, Mask of the Red Death. And you have this scene where you have the rich and the famous and the depraved all here in this moment of debauchery. And her coming in. And in the story, it is very much the Red Death, a personification of this, this plague that has hit the land. But in this, she is more... Uh, the angel of death. And we'll get into what I think the Verna character is later. And that's that's not too far off the mark, I don't think. But the way this ends, it, it's very similar to Mask of the Red Death, but also has shades of the Hop Frog story, where it, instead of fire, it is uh, acidic, toxic waste <laughs> that, that uh, kills everybody off. But by God, that whole scene was just gruesome and gnarly. And the visual effects whether they be cg whether they be practical like at the end when you saw the carnage was just disgusting and gory and it, it was horrific that's where i think i fell in love with this show i really liked it i thought it was going to be good after that first episode but it was this episode that i realized that they were going to do each episode was going to be a different edgar Allan Poe story with the fall of the house of usher as the through line and that they were going to do modern takes of all these different stories for each episode. So not only was this a Fall of the House of Usher adaptation, but this is the episode where I knew this was going to be an adaptation of all sorts of different works from Edgar Allan Poe. And that's, I think, where I fell in love with this series, with this episode, The Mask of the Red Death. Now, the next episode, uh, Murder in the Rue Morgue, uh, another one where the character involved is ripped directly from the story. You had Kate Siegel playing Camille Espana. And this is right from the story, Murder on the Rue Morgue. She is, she and her mother, the, the Camille character and her mother, they are the ones murdered in the case that Dupin is investigating. And once they had the scene where this, this medical facility called Rue 
and the colloquial nickname of it being Rue Morgue, and the fact that they had chimpanzees that they were experimenting on all these medical procedures on. Uh, it was like, oh my God. Uh, it, it was so obvious, but I didn't care. I didn't care that they they set the bait out and I took it because I just couldn't wait to see how they were going to do it different. And, and it really was like a, a modern adaptation when you introduce the fact that this is a research facility where they're doing experimentations on on chimpanzees it, it plays into a modern societal taboo of experimenting on animals that's not where the case went in the book or in the story i should say but it was a, an ape or a chimpanzee i can't remember exactly uh what it was but it was some si sort of a primate that was the murderer in the murderer in the room org and it was a chimp that killed the Camille character. And while you didn't see the actual murder take place, you saw the aftermath. And again, gory. That's one of the things uh, in catching headlines about this story leading up to it from all the early reviews and stuff like that. I try not to read too much about it, but you can't help but seeing headlines. Uh, that's the one thing that I kept seeing and my wife kept telling me, oh, she saw how gory this is. And it really was. It was a, it was a gory horror. And I, I like how they, they took a, a scary story and a creepy story and several creepy stories and really amped up the horror by adding a, a, a level of gore to it that... It wasn't over the top, but it was enough that you're like, oh god, it was it was startling. Some of the the effects they used, the practical effects, and some of the CG effects to create the gore that they did, uh, they did a really good job. And this was uh, another one of those where it was like when you saw the reveal of her sitting there, well, lying there, slumped over, and this chimpanzee, uh, a CG chimpanzee, and they used a lot of CG animals in this. And I've seen worse CG animals. I was quite pleased that they weren't completely obvious that they were CG in some instances. Some they were, some they weren't. And, and I, I can appreciate that. Black Cat was the next episode. And this was the first one where it took an Edgar Allan Poe tale, but used a different character to tell it. The child of Roderick that uh, is in this story is Napoleon or Leo Usher. Now, the Napoleon character actually comes from the short story, The Spectacles, where it's about a, a young man, Napoleon Bonaparte, Poussart. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing that, butchering that French name, but, and it's more of like a, it's kind of a, a silly story about essentially get your eyes checked. And if you need glasses, wear glasses, for God's sakes. Or you're not going to see what you think you're going to see. Uh, I, I'm sure there's probably deeper themes to that. The folly of love at first sight and that sort of thing. But it, it really doesn't have too much bearing on this character's namesake. Doesn't have too much bearing on the story itself. Uh, you have the Napoleon or Leo character who is into video games. He doesn't create video games, but he funds people who do and has gathered a great online following and has become famous that way played by Rahul Cooley and again another Mike Flanagan uh, favorite but he has a, a boyfriend Julius who owns a black cat named Pluto and of course that is the name of the black cat from the story the black cat 
And while it plays out slightly different, you do have a lot of the same notes where the cat loses an eye. And then all of a sudden he starts hearing the cat and the st cat starts tormenting him. And you have that moment where he is destroying the walls with a replica Thor hammer, which I don't know why that seems so hilarious. But then Julius, who had broken up with him because of the mania, uh, he shows up and you think there you're going to have that moment where in the story, uh, the narrator or the main character, he's going to kill the cat, but accidentally kills his wife and then bricks her up behind the wall. And then you have the cat inside the wall. Uh, you get a, a play off that. But I, I was I was happy to see the Julius character, who's a good character. He doesn't get harmed in this. And they do it a, a little bit differently. They do play into him tearing down the wall and seeing a body in there, but it is a, a vision from the Verna character with the cat on top of it. But then they have uh, Leo see the cat on the ledge of their balcony, and he goes out to take a big swing, and the cat's not really there. It is all a vision, and he falls to his death. Again, not a, an accurate adaptation of the Black Cat story, but very much in line with with all of the ideas behind the story. You've got a lot of those elements from the story in this modern interpretation of it. And I get it. Edgar Allan Poe had a lot of characters bricked up behind walls in his story. And you're already going to do that with with another character. We'll, we'll talk about when we get towards the finale. But uh, so, so I get why they did something different and they had him falling off the balcony. You need to really have different and unique deaths for all these different siblings. And that's why I think you get the Goldbug story deviating so much from its namesake. Next episode is Telltale Heart. Now, this story is one where the the main character, Victorine Lafricade, is not the same character from the story. Now, in the Telltale Heart story, you've got the first-person narrator, which Poe does a lot, uh, the old man with the vulture-like eye, and the murder, and the, the subsequent burial, and then hearing the beating heart, uh, the guilt of, of what he had done, uh, causing him to hear that hallucination. Well, well you don't have the, the same characters, the, the first-person narrator, the man with the, the vulture-like eye, you have this Victorine character and her girlfriend and co-worker Al, uh, they work in research. Al is a uh, an accomplished surgeon, heart surgeon, and they are trying to create a device that is going to help people with arrhythmia and it's going to be revolutionary because it's going to detect blockages and, and keep people from having strokes long before they have one. It, it really, like I said, it is the best of intentions, but the lengths in which Victorine is willing to go towards is unscrupulous and the reason why the Usher house needs to be brought down in this. Uh, now, I wondered, because Victorine Lafricade is a character in the Poe store, The Premature Burial, and again, uh, another big theme of Poe things, uh, if you're not getting walled up somewhere, you're getting buried uh, alive, and I, I wondered if they were going to throw some aspects of that into this, but they really didn't. I mean, they stayed, like I said, not faithful in the characters, but faithful in the story uh, to a degree of the, the telltale heart and the revelation when, when Victorine starts hearing this 
it's not a heartbeat. It's like a squishy, almost uh, electronic sound. And it doesn't take too long before you realize it is the sound of this device that they've created that's supposed to go on a heart, but you don't know why she's hearing it. And then that, that revelation when they show Al's character uh, with her chest all opened up and she's been dead for, for days now and it's got that that heart device on her heart and it's pumping her heart even though it's pumping nothing because she is dead and and the madness that the Victorine character displays is is just it's creepy and eerie and that is a credit to the actress uh, Tania Miller who plays Victorine and you may remember her she was in The Haunting of Bly Manor a character I really I really liked her character in that and it was nice to see her show up in this but I really enjoyed the madness that she played because like I said uh, she had the best of intentions but she was unscrupulous in what she was willing to do to get this device into human trials and to get it on the market and while she had the best of intentions uh, the road to hell is paid with good intentions and she was willing to do horrible things to fast track this and the madness that ensued because of that guilt just it was fun to watch in a wickedly disturbing way now episode six gold bug was probably the episode that had to do the least with the namesake because in the edgar Allan poe story gold bug that is more of like an adventure like a pirate and ship's adventure looking for captain kid's gold and and that sort of thing and it really had nothing to do with the story we got to see Goldbug was more of a brand that they just used for for imagery i think where you got more of this story from was the the namesakes of the characters you had roderick's second oldest child tamerlane played by the the wonderful samantha sloyan who she actually and another character we're going to talk about uh made an appearance in episode one of creep show season four which we're going to be talking about on thursday's show but you had the tamerlane character which is based on the poem Tamerlane which is about a a nobleman who has a, a love a love for a peasant woman but uh, decides to build a kingdom and chose that and he essentially exchanged a kingdom for a broken heart he chose power over love a and you get that with this character because of her husband William Wilson played by Matt Beadle and that character is based on the William Wilson short story and that has a lot to do with doppelgangers and you get that uh, because she married this guy because she thought he was going to help her brand and she never loved him he was more of a, a marriage of convenience to help build this empire that she wanted to build uh, but in the end, she was heartbroken because she knew what she'd done was wrong. And she maybe did love him to a degree, but just could never let herself show it. Uh, it it's a very tragic character. You got the William Wilson character who, like I said, uh, deals with doppelgangers and they have kind of a fetish where she brings in a, a hooker essentially to to play her and she sits there and masturbates while she watches this hooker pretend to be her and do various things have dinner uh there's there's a lot of ass eating references in this episode but you have 
kind of that doppelganger storyline in a in a very different way. And then of course the doppelganger thing really kind of brings itself to the forefront with Tamerlane and the Verna character, where we see Verna uh, as the Tamerlane character, and and you get a little more of a, an accurate doppelganger vibe from that story. And again, this does not really follow the Goldbug story at all, at least to my recollection, it does not. And especially the way Tamerlane dies, where she is breaking all the mirrors because she's seeing herself but thinking it's Verna as her and of course she jumps up to break the mirror over the bed and while it seems a little far-fetched it was gruesome the the piece of glass bouncing off the bed and stabbing her in the back and then the big shard falling and and sticking her in her throat was was gruesome to watch it wasn't it wasn't gory by any means although there was a, a little bit of gore there but it was just the the whole idea of it the thought of it the feel of it as it's happening uh, just was disturbing and shocking and horrific and samantha sloyan does a wonderful job with this character i really uh seeing her in a lot of mike flanagan stuff has really made me appreciate her as an actress and i really start to look forward to seeing her show up in things like i was so excited to see her show up in the first episode of creep show season four she shows up with another character I'll, I'll talk about briefly because she doesn't really play too much into the poe aspects of this but ruth cod plays juno usher roderick's second wife and she's a former drug addict and and she really plays into the drug addiction and the big pharma storyline of this that i'm not going to get too much into the weeds on that uh, we'll talk briefly about some of the major themes and that is a major theme of this but she's a wonderful actress another uh, young actress who was in uh, the Midnight Club, and then of course we'll get to see her playing with uh, Samantha Sloyan in the first episode of Creepshow Season 4, but she does a, a brilliant job as this character and a very likable character, one of the few uh, likable characters in this, and one of the few characters that doesn't meet an untimely demise. And of course we get the penultimate episode, The Pit and the Pendulum. This is probably the one of the episodes I was looking forward to most because as a kid, this was one of the, one of the stories like Black Cat and Telltale Heart that just really fascinated me, the idea behind it as a kid and scared the, the shit out of me of being trapped there as this pendulum slowly makes its way down to to cut you open but this story involves the the eldest uh, child of Roderick Usher Frederick now the Frederick character is probably a reference to Metzengerstein a tale and imitation of the German it's a short story by Edgar Allan Poe and it involves two uh, disputing German families and there's a stable that catches fire and a horse and uh, and again another another thing where the character involved the namesake of the character is more just a reference to Poe as opposed to having to do with anything in the story this is more of the pit and the pendulum story and the Pit and the Pendulum main character, I believe, is not mentioned. Like many narrators in Poe's works, uh, a lot of the narrators go unnamed. And I think they just gave this name as a Poe reference. But it really is sort of a Pit and the Pendulum story. Although 
very loosely interpreted, but it ends in a very similar and disgusting way because you have Henry Thomas playing this character, Frederick Usher, the oldest child, the heir to Fortunato, the the business that the Ushers run. There's an interesting story with his wife uh, kind of being persuaded by uh, Perry to to go to this club where she is one of the, the I think the only survivor of this this massacre and she's got all these burns and we see you know he seems like a very simple guy very nice very amicable guy but when he suspects his wife of something we really see the worst come out in this character and he goes from being a nice simple guy to to a monster and he starts you know, taking drugs and just uh, the mania of this character gets itself to a point where you just, you don't like the character and any redeeming qualities he had, he's lost them. And then it's, I I didn't see it coming. I, I figure it was going to have something to do with the ball and chain because this building uh, that they had this uh, pop-up rave in was supposed to be demolished. And we see throughout the series that Roderick has been tasking Frederick with, with tearing down this building. And, and finally, it's to the point where it has to be done. And Frederick goes there and... Through the Verna character, again, we'll get into what I think she really is later and her her role in all of this. But he gets trapped there, paralyzed there, and the building starts coming down. And then you have this piece of steel girder that has like a, a bit of metal or something attached to the end of them. It looks like a, a pendulum uh, with a blade on it, much like the, the pendulum that you read about in the Poe story. And it's as the the building starts to come down, it gets lower and lower and lower until all of a sudden you see the reaction on Frederick's face, Henry Thomas's performance, and and you hear the sound effect, and you're like, oh shit! And then they pan out, and you see that this pendulum is now cutting through him, and and you have a a sense of what's to come. I mean, if you, you're paying attention, you realize each kid's getting their own story and they're going from the youngest to the oldest. Frederick is the oldest and you realize he's going to be the pit in the pendulum. But when you have those scenes where Roderick is kind of spilling his guts to Dupin and he's seeing images of his kids, uh, their ghosts, and, and the one of Frederick is his mother, Annabelle Lee, carrying him as a child to Roderick and Roderick holding him in his arms. And then all of a sudden the lower part of this child falls off and the guts start spilling out. Uh, you, you knew what was going to be happening with this character and it was disgusting. It was gross. And like I said, it wasn't a word for word adaptation of the story, but it really worked within the context of this character that they've created for this story and to bring the pit in the pendulum because there is sort of that interrogation scene because I believe uh, the pit in the pendulum story has a lot to do with the Grand Inquisition and that time frame. And and he really is kind of questioned by the Verna character. And that scene with Verna and Frederick leading up to Frederick's demise very much felt like he was being interrogated by Verna. Which leads us to the season finale for this, or the series finale called The Raven. And this is really the episode that ties everything up and answers a lot of questions 
from the start of it, uh, a midnight dreary, part of the opening lines of The Raven, to this episode, The Raven, you get the the through line for this whole series, the story about Roderick and Madeline and Verna. And you get the, the revelation that everything that has happened to Roderick and Madeline was all a part of a deal with the devil. Maybe figuratively, maybe literally. We'll get into that and the Verna character coming up here here briefly. But uh, they made this deal that they would sacrifice their bloodline to get all of their wildest dreams come true. To become the owners of the Fortunato Company. To get away with what they did. Because part of this uh, story going into the past, going into the 70s, you have... Roderick being a part of Fortunato, working down in the basement in the mail room and working his way up with the CEO, Rufus Griswold, which that's an interesting Poe reference because Rufus Griswold was a, a bit of an adversary to Edgar Allan Poe in, in Poe's life. He, he would write critical reviews of Poe's work. Then upon Poe's death, he wrote a uh, a eulogy or an obituary where he was, uh, you know, he was the one that implied that Poe was a, a drug addict and an alcoholic. Well, these things may be true. I think uh, we're finding that maybe at least the drug addiction was a little more sensationalized because of what Rufus Griswold wrote in kind of an anonymous uh, obituary for for Poe after his death. So not a good character, and I see why they made the Rufus Griswold character a villain in this. But uh, but that whole story ties in with the I think the final story that we get to talk about is the Cask of Amontillado, which is where the Fortunato name comes from. Fortunato is the nobleman that uh, Montresor is getting revenge on, walled up behind the wall of bricks. And and we get to see that played out with this character. Even in the costume that uh, Griswold is wearing, definitely a reference to Fortunato and, and the cask of Amontillado. Part of the reason why uh, Roderick and Madeline Usher can take over Fortunato, the company, is because they walled up Griswold and to get away with it. And to get everything they wanted, they make this deal with Verna. And we see that played out. And we see, uh, finally, the whole picture of the story. And then, of course, this story wraps up with, essentially, the ending of the fall of the House of Usher. Madeline is down in the basement. In the story, it's the tomb. And she comes up where uh, Roderick thought she was dead. And then, of course... Uh, the narrator, in this case, uh, Dupin, running from the house as it crashes down on them. Now, in the story, it's swallowed up by this this lake that surrounds the house. They don't really play in the to the fissure aspect of it. They don't play into the... I mean, granted, it's Dupin or it's the narrator telling stories to Roderick that start this where in this it's Roderick telling stories to the narrator in this case Dupin that lead up to the end and what happens it's very similar in some regards but very different but ultimately the same end Roderick and Madeline die in 
the fall of the House of Usher, their childhood home. They don't play it up too supernatural with, you know, everything falling into this pit and uh, kind of like the end of Poltergeist, uh, where the house just completely disappears. They didn't do anything uh, overtly supernatural like that. They didn't do the big fissure going down through the house. I thought that would have been a nice touch and a nice nod to the original story. But there again, it may have felt too on the nose and too obvious. Uh, Dupin running out of the house and escaping with his life, just like the narrator was was good. I liked the tie-ins to this. And, and the one character we didn't talk about uh, that we are going to talk about right now is probably one of the most tragic characters because she is at the time uh, that Roderick is ending up this story, the last living member other than Roderick and Madeline of the Usher bloodline. And that is Lenore Usher. She is the daughter of Frederick. She's played by Kaylee Curran. Uh, you remember her from Dr. Sleep. She played Abra in that. Does a really good job. But she is probably like, as Roderick says, she is the only, the only good one of them. And she has all these good things that she wants to do with the Usher money once she realizes that she's the last surviving member. But as a part of this deal that they made with Verna. And and I liked it. She's referenced never, several times, Verna references, when she goes and is a part of the death of all of Roderick's children, that it could have been this way. It could have been peaceful. But you made the choice to come here to this place and have it go down like this. She could have made things peaceful, but the children just in their, like I said, good intentions, but wicked ways, forced her hand to make their deaths more disgusting and more tragic and more traumatizing and more bloody, essentially. But in this one, I loved the moment between the two actresses, Carla Cagino and Kaylee Curran, where the Verna character is telling her all the good things that will happen because of her about how her mom will recover and start a charity in her name and help all these millions of people. And that her death, while it's tragic and while it has to be, it won't be for nothing. And instead of her dying in some horrific, bloody way, Verna just touches her forehead and she passes away peacefully. It's a tragic end, and, and it's probably the saddest end of all this because she was the best of the ushers. And it probably one of the most emotional and saddest scenes to watch. Another character I didn't really get to talk about much, and I'll just, as a kind of a side note to all the characters and all the stories, Mark Hamill plays Arthur Pym. He is the... The lawyer for the family. He is the guy that, that gets shit done. Uh, the ugly shit. And he is a badass. Mark Hamill does a really good job with this character. His namesake is from the story, uh, the novel, uh, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. Again, this story is really more of an adventure story. A story on the high seas. They do play into that a little bit because... He's on all these ships and going on all these adventures and they reference the Arthur Pym character having circumnavigated the globe from, from east to west, north to south. And he had a lot of these adventures, but this is not that Arthur Pym. This is an older Arthur Pym who became a lawyer and 
has gone on to to take care of the Usher family. And there again, like I said, Mark Hamill does a really good job with this character and and creating a character. Uh, so it didn't feel like, uh, that's, that's Luke Skywalker. That's Mark Hamill playing this character. It, it felt like its own individual character and you didn't get lost in the star behind the character. But ultimately, this is such a wonderful story that that Mike Flanagan created. And I don't know, I mean, he had a hand in a lot of the writing of each episode, even though they did bring in other writers to help out. But uh, as far as an adapted screenplay for, I have to imagine this has got to be up for some awards once award season hits. And the, the score to this from the Newton brothers, I thought was just so haunting and tragic. And it really played into the tragedy of this story. And that really is what this story is about. The story to me is about regret because you're seeing this story told through the eyes of Roderick Usher. And and when it's all said and done at the end of his life, I think he does regret the decisions he's made to become the man that he is. He could have been more like his wife, Annabelle Lee. He mentions how Lenore is more like her. You know, he she's got his fire, but Lenore has Annabelle Lee's sense of, of compassion and love and caring. And that's why she is the best of all the ushers, knowing that she died because of the mistake he made in making this deal with the devil. It's, I think, a a huge theme in this. Kind of that old uh, saying from the Bible, and I'm paraphrasing here, what profits a man if he should gain the whole world but lose his own soul? And you have that in this Roderick character. His own twin sister turned on him to take over the company when she had the opportunity, when the opportunity arose. And that that really played into the Madeline character because she was all about gaining power. And she gained power in the end, briefly, but she gained power. She gained control of Fortunato, which was really all she wanted to begin with. And she turned on her own brother to do that. And him seeing that and realizing that they could have had a a wonderful relationship, brother-sister relationship, gone on to have families. But it's it's that ambition and that, that need to have more, to have power, that he lost his entire family, including his twin sister, that they were they were inseparable. Which leads me to the Verna character. Is what is the Verna character? Because she plays an integral role in this whole story. She is orchestrating things from the uh, initial deal with the devil, so to speak, uh, that she makes with Roderick and Madeline to the payment coming due where she has to to kill off all of his, his bloodline reluctantly, but she does it all the same because that is the payment due. Sometimes she does it cruelly. Sometimes she does it sympathetically, but she is definitely a supernatural figure. And at first I... In talking with my wife about this, I thought, yeah, she's a devil. She's a demon. Uh, Then I thought, well, maybe she's death. But I think I had it right the first time. I think this is the devil. Because several things she says are in line with that about, you know, all her observations about humanity, the things she loves, the things she is surprised by. She acts like she's been there since 
humanity began and and seen this weird experiment. They even mention a a crossroads devil at at some point, which I think is kind of also a play on this character. I mean, it is the Raven from the Raven story because Verna is just an anagram for Raven. So it is the Raven, but even in the Raven story, there is a sense that the Raven may be uh, the devil as well because the narrator in that story believes the raven is from the night's plutonian shores and of course uh, plutonian that is a reference to pluto the roman god of the underworld it's an allusion to satan the line whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed i mean that's kind of allusion to satan as the tempter so i, I really think that this is yes it is the raven from the story of the raven but it is in a bigger sense this is the devil and and a deal with the devil has brought the fall of the house of usher not only the physical house but the line the bloodline of this house now in the story uh there is kind of a metaphysical aspect to this story where it almost seems like there is a link between roderick usher madeline usher and the physical house the usher manor why they all fall apart and crumble at the same time and all die at the same time i think in one of the hp lovecraft biographies lovecraft is quoted as saying that he believed that this is because all three roderick madeline and the house all shared the same soul which is a very metaphysical thing that it's a you know get your mind wrapped around that i don't know if that really plays into this story i think it would have been cool if it did uh, but the physical house really didn't have much to play in it as much as the house in regards to the family did so that doesn't really make sense so how do you bring about this fall well uh, i think adding in the raven story and the raven being allusion to the devil and this deal with the devil bringing this house down i I think was a, a really interesting way to go and it allowed you to intertwine two classic Edgar Allan Poe stories. Now, that's not to say there wasn't a lot uh, of other things to be said by this. You know, like I said, I think this is a story about grief and a story about trauma and a story, I think more importantly, about regret. But it also had a lot of obvious social commentations today. Of course, the Fortunato Fortune was based on prescription drugs, opioids, the people that are addicted and died because of that. It really put a strong message out about that. Even there at the end, I mean, it it was a lot of not mixed messages, but two sides of the same coin. You know, that whole spiel by Madeline at the end about, I mean, there's a lot of stuff about the patriarchy and all of that, but also about, of course, you know, the drug companies are bad for pushing these drugs but society is also culpable in that you know these drug companies only make what people want and if people didn't want that then they wouldn't you know she said if if mcdonald's thought kale salads would sell they'd be making kale salads instead of big macs but nobody wants healthy food like that they want the fast you know greasy burger and fries and it was it was an interesting take on big pharma consumerism and they weren't 
vague about it. I mean, they were quite, Mike Flanagan and the writing team were quite open about that. But I thought it's it still worked within the context of this story. And while, like I said, that Madeline uh, monologue there at the end did feel a little preachy to a degree, like I said, it, it, it still worked within the context of the story. And I didn't mind it. And especially when it took a look from both sides. It's not all just Big Pharma's fault. Society only buys what it wants and for as much as there's a lot of shit out there that we don't need and is bad for us it's our fault because we buy that shit anyway even though it's bad for us doesn't put big pharma off the hook doesn't put the the rich people off the hook but you know we got to be uh, owning up to the part we play in all this so it was a, a lot of interesting themes being tossed about uh, a lot of interesting ideas uh, definitely a lot of conversation starters and you know whether you're talking about the themes of this, what Verna really represents, whether people deserve to die in the way that they died or not. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things and like I said, it was all stunningly acted, stunningly written. Uh, the music was fantastic. The sound design was really good. The special effects were really good. There was a lot of CG in this, but there was also a ton of practical effects in this. And there were some times where the line between practical and CG was blurred. And I think that's where CG is best done, is when it enhances practical and you can't tell the difference between the two. And, and I thought they did a really good job. The, the visual effects people and the practical effects people did a really good job with putting this story together. And this is definitely a story that you have to give it a chance. Uh, if you love Edgar Allan Poe, you're going to be giddy as a schoolgirl when you watch this because of all the references. And there were so many references I didn't even get to. Like there's a lot of poetry read in this. And, and they play Roderick as the Edgar Allan Poe character. Uh, they essentially uh, attribute the poem Annabelle Lee is a poem that Roderick wrote for his wife, Annabelle Lee. Uh, they have him reciting the Raven as if he's just making it up there as he's going. And there's a lot of poems being read at the funerals that uh, I believe are Edgar Allan Poe works. And there's just a lot of references. So if you love Edgar Allan Poe, you're going to love this. If you love a bit of gore and suspense and horror and, and creepiness and atmosphere this has it for days because i think that is where mike flanagan really captured the essence of what edgar Allan poe is all about in the works and while you can deviate from the story to some degree and you can do a modern take on the story if you keep that atmosphere and that tone uh, I, I think you're going to have a really successful Poe adaptation. And he did what I think a lot of Poe adaptations here recently or stories about Poe uh, where he's part of the narrative. I think that's kind of where they've missed the mark is that they they lack the atmosphere that Poe and his works really create. And I think Matt, Mike Flanagan captured that. So if you love Poe, you're going to love this. If you love good storytelling, good character development, good story development, atmosphere and tone and tension and suspense, I think you're going to love this. And if you like some gory horror, this is going to be what you're all about. So it's got a little something for everyone. And for my money, probably one of the best uh, series or shows or limited series to come out in 2023, if not one of the best things altogether in 2023 that I've seen in genre horror, fantasy, science fiction. So that's my thought on the fall of the House of Usher. 
Definitely worth a watch. Catch it on Netflix if you haven't watched it already. If you had, hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. Hopefully you got as much as I did out of it. It's definitely one thing, if you're not really familiar with a lot of Poe's work, to look at the Wikipedia entry or the IMDb. Look at the character names. Look up those character names. See where they relate to various Poe works. Uh, see where the different uh, things that you hear about and different verses that you hear throughout this. Uh, go look those up and, and, and really dig into Edgar Allan Poe through this. I think is a great way to look at it as well because there are so many references. I mean, I just scratched the surface on all the Poe references in this. And I think it's going to be fun after the fact digging into some of those references. So I want to thank everyone for listening to my thoughts on the fall of the House of Usher. You can check out more on Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop on our social pages, uh, talking about all the horror, fantasy, and science fiction on Facebook and Instagram. And be listening because we've got a new episode coming up on Thursday where we're going to be talking about Creepshow Season 4. But we've also got a lot of other episodes coming up this week, a lot of bonus content, uh, especially in the month of October. I know we're going to talk about uh, Castlevania Nocturne at some point. Uh, there's some movies out that we're going to be talking about. So just trying to get as much content in because we've got a lot of horror going on. It's October. What do you expect? This is like Christmas for a podcast like mine. So a lot of extra content and you can stay on top of that by liking, following, subscribing the podcast, wherever you're listening to this ad. That way you get those notifications when we have new episodes drop. And no matter what you do, uh, please do that, but also share this podcast you know, with anyone that loves horror, fantasy, and science fiction. And leave those reviews. Five stars would be awesome, but whatever review you leave, we do appreciate that. That helps with those uh, algorithms. Uh, something you hear a lot about in Fall of the House of Usher is Madeline talking about algorithms, but that helps us get the word out about this podcast, so please leave those reviews. So until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!